so we'll go ahead and get started anyway. The, so here's the good news and the bad news about this. So the good news is, so we finally made it into 1 Peter chapter 4, and we're going to cover 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11, which you get to have the sequel right afterwards in the sermon, because Jason Chen is going to be preaching from 1 Peter 4, chapter, or, uh, verse 12. Uh, the downside of that, of course, is now I have to kind of rethink what I'm doing next week. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see about that. But all right, let's go to Lord in prayer. Our Father, we thank you so much for the um, message that you give. Your spirit is um, very obviously teaching us uh, today about suffering. And we pray, Lord, that we would understand uh, and believe. And uh, not just with our minds, but with our hearts, believe the work that you're doing, um, understand what it means to suffer uh, in various aspects and to uh, come into conformity with your will. Um, We trust you, Lord, that it is for our good. And so we pray that you would help us in doing what is right. We pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, so as we've seen throughout this whole section on uh, 1 Peter, the theme is suffering, trusting, and doing what is right. Uh, That, of course, comes from the very high point of First Peter, which I was really looking forward to doing, which is verses 12 through 17 of this section. But anyway, this is, that is the high point where finally it's gone to, we're, we're going to get to this point. But the entire book is all about suffering, trusting, and doing what is right. We'll see those phrases over and over again. Just the, the concept of suffering shows up 15 different times, and he's constantly talking about doing what is right. And also how, we, how that works in entrusting ourselves to God. We have faith, and, and that is how these things all come together. Um, today we've gotten to uh, a point where we're going to talk about sanctification. Um, just as a quick review, though, remember last week he made the point that it is better to suffer for, what is do- for doing right than to suffer for doing wrong. And in order to um, bring that out, he offered a a number of different uh, supports for that. So first of all, of course, Jesus Christ himself, right? Because because why is it better to suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong? Well, it's all about deliverance, right? Those who suffer for doing what is right will be delivered. Those who suffer for doing what is wrong will be judged. And we've seen that already and we'll continue. We saw that last week. We see it this week. Last week, he said, Remember Jesus Christ himself. He suffered for, what, for doing what was right. He was just. He suffered for the unjust. In the same way that um, the Apostle Peter has encouraged us to push forward in the face of those, even if those are, who are unjust are attacking us, that we do what is right. And that's what Jesus did. In the face of injustice, he was just, but he died for those who were, un, in, who were unjust. And in order to bring them to God... Um, and what we see is, of course, what happened to Jesus. He suffered, but then he was vindicated. So those who, are su- those who suffer in the flesh will be vindicated by God. How do we know that? Well, it, we know it by faith, but we also know it by what God has already shown. And he's already shown that Jesus, who suffered um, for doing what was right, now, although he died in the flesh, he's been made alive in the spirit. And now he's resurrected. He is at God's right hand and all authority has been given to him. So he has had a full deliverance. Now for us, we're still in process, 
right? But he does also, the apostle Peter tells us that the exam, gives us the example of Noah because those who, those who uh, suffered for, or those who were disobedient, those who were disobedient were judged in the flood. But those who uh, entrusted themselves to Christ, a very, a, lo- a small number, a very small number, they entrusted themselves to Christ and they, and that's how Christ brought them through the flood, right? Now that applies directly to us. He appeals from that example in the Old Testament showing that that's a type of what we have now. We also are saved. God, uh, Jesus Christ the just suffered for the unjust to bring us to God. How did he bring us to God? Well, just the same way that he brought Noah through the flood, he brings us because it's through baptism. Through baptism, we're saved. Now, not baptism in the ceremony, not baptism in the flesh. It's not just the washing. It's not the getting wet. It's not the washing off of dirt. But through the appeal for a good conscience, we're saved by the resurrection of Christ. Okay, so what we see is that this, this benefit of suffering, that we, in a unity with Christ, we have a benefit of suffering, which is deliverance. And now what he's going to do is turn to a second benefit that we have, being united with Christ in death. We also have not only deliverance from judgment, but we have deliverance from sin. And so that's our passage today. So let's read together 1 Peter 4, 1 through 11. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In all this, they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. The end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Whenever you hear amen, you should say amen. 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 So we have in this passage the second uh, uh, benefit that we have for being united with Christ in death. We were born again into a new inheritance. Remember, this sanctification, uh, what is sanctification? We've talked about this before, but what, what does it mean to be sanctified? Yeah, to be made holy, right? To be set apart as holy. 
And that is exactly what the purpose has been throughout the entire uh, book of Peter. That's how the apostle Peter started. He started by teaching that this is God's purpose because what did he do? We were born again We were born again into a new inheritance. We had, uh, remember the principle that we learned, that you inherit life from your father. And everyone who is born in Adam inherits Adam's life, which is unto death, right? Everyone who was born of their forefathers, he says, you know, you need to turn, we're no longer part of that feudal way of life, that vain way of life. But instead, we've been born again to a father, and uh, our eternal father, our heavenly father, has an inheritance for us. And so we've been set aside. Uh, Christ has, has a, a will for us. And that will is not just that we be saved from judgment, that we, but that we be saved to God, that we be saved to be in his presence. And so in, in the previous sections, we read um, that he's therefore commands us as obedient children, you know, you've been born again to a new father. So as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourself also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And then just a few, a uh, few, uh, paragraphs later, he reminds us, remember, you're no longer part of this world. You have been born again. You've died to that. Now you are born again and being born again, you're strangers and aliens to the world. You don't belong to that anymore. So as strangers and aliens, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. And in this, we see that we have, uh, that we're now in a war. That's that's the point of our existence right now or the way that we can understand, the grid that we can understand our existence right now. That although all of these things are true and that we have a hope, remember we're to gird up the loins of our mind, right? We talked about that. That means you know, we're, we're prepared for battle. And so we're in war right now. We're to gird up, we're to fix our eyes on that hope. But the reason that it's a hope is because it's not here right now. That's not where we are. It's a hope. It's something sure. It's something. It's not, not the way that the world thinks of hope. It's not something that may or may not happen. Well, I hope it works out. It's not like that. We have a sure promise. We have it by faith. That hope is an absolute truth, and we know that we will get there, but the reason it's hope is because it's not yet revealed. It's future. And yet, that still has something for today. It affects everything that we do today. What it does is it thrusts us into a war because we don't belong here anymore. We're behind enemy lines, right? We used to be part of the enemy, but now we still live among the enemy. So we have these, this war. This war is with the flesh, so with our own selves. It's with the world. It's with everyone else's flesh, right? That's what the world is. And it's with the devil, And so the problem, though, is to leave us at this is potentially to leave us pretty hopeless because you don't have any power to win this war. Uh, You know, the the, uh, essential reading for this whole, for sanctification is uh, by a guy named uh, John Owen. And he has this, you know, if you, if, if you, uh, having, if you try to go into a battle just as you are, just in your own flesh. It's the same thing as dropping someone off into battle without any sword at all. You just drop them in among all sorts of people who are armed and you have nothing. 
and of course you're going to be destroyed because we'd have no ability in ourselves to be sanctified any more than we have the ability to justify ourselves because we can't, we can't justify ourselves. We can't tell God that we are just before him. How can we sanctify ourselves? We, uh, being, to be sanctified means to be made holy. Something that's unholy can't make itself holy, can't set itself apart. And so the key to understanding sanctification comes from this passage. Now, this passage has a sister passage, and it's, this is a very shortened passage, that the passage, um, anyone ever heard a sermon from Romans 6? That, that's a joke, right? Because, right? That's what, that's what we're going through right now, right? So hopefully I'm kind of counting on you being a little familiar with this. Uh, this passage is the abbreviated form but it shows that the Apostle Peter is teaching the exact same thing as the Apostle Paul. Remember, the Apostle Peter has just said, you are, you, you're, the, the, you're saved from judgment because you've been united with baptism. Through baptism, you are identified with Christ. You have union with Christ through baptism. Right? You have been joined to him and you are saved through that. In terms of judgment, you're saved from judgment. You've been brought through the flood. But not only that, we're also saved from sin in the same way. It's really easy to think about sanctification and justification in the wrong way. Um, the re- it's easy to think, okay, well, you know, I know that we're, we're saved, we're justified by faith alone. But then after that, what we've got to do is do a lot of works to make sure that we kind of keep up with our justification. Right, but the apostle, and I know that's easy because the apostle Paul warns the Galatians about that because they were in the same boat. You know, he said, you know, wait a second. You heard everything that I preached and you began by the spirit. You began by faith. So having started in the spirit, are you gonna be perfected by the flesh? Because that's what sanctification is. It's the actual outworking of the reality of the righteousness that we have in Christ. But how is that gonna come out? Is that gonna come out through the work of the flesh. May it never be, that can't be. In fact, there are some ways that sanctification and justification are very, very similar. Um, they're both, they're very similar because what they're both based on, they, they're accomplished by the work of the Holy Spirit based on the objective work of Christ. Christ did something outside of us which the Holy Spirit applies to us. So we know that in justification, what happened? Why are we justified? That's not rhetorical. How, how are we justified by, by Christ? You know, he's, I'm not Jesus, right? Jesus died, so how, is that, how does that have anything to do with me? Why am I justified? Yeah, so we, my sin was counted against Christ, right? Why did Jesus die? He died for my sin. God counted my sin against him. In fact, it says in many places that when Jesus died, he took up our sin, right? He took up our sin upon the cross so that our sin was counted against him. So he took his sin, our sin upon him and we have his righteousness counted toward us. Now, that's true for justification. It's also true for our sanctification. Our sanctification is 
the working of the Holy Spirit because if Christ put to death, if, if God judged and put to death sin in Christ, then that also, by the work of the Holy Spirit, is applied to us. That he's actually putting to death the flesh. He's putting to death sin in us so that he's delivering us not only from judgment, but from sin. Now, the, the power of sin. Now, that's the way in which uh, justification and sanctification are similar. There are many ways in which they're different. For instance, um, it's the application of that, the way that we apprehend this work of Christ. You know, Christ objectively outside of us paid all the penalty for sin. And the Holy Spirit applies that through, through faith. He gives us faith. And the way that we grab a hold of that is only by faith, right? We can't, we can't do any work in order to, uh, to merit anything before Jesus. But in the work of sanctification, he is making that reality in us and that reality of working out this, this salvation in such a way that he transforms our wills and our minds. He's, he's sanctifying us, he's pulling us aside as he's pulling us aside into him to live with him. So what that means is that the means that the Holy Spirit uses is not only faith in sense of belief and trust, but also the work, our works. That he's using both of those things as means, but it's not our works or our faith that actually accomplish this sanctification. It is the work of Jesus Christ because we cannot kill our sin. Our sin was killed by God in Christ on the cross. But he applies it to us as we come to him through faith and continue, to, and continue in the works that he has for us. The other, another difference is that justification is one, one time for all, right? Once for all. That when we have been declared righteous before God, we are righteous before him. That is a legal judgment once for all that we, we don't continue to be justified over and over again. Sanctification is an ongoing process. Sanctification is the, the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in us that we would be more and more conformed to his will. Justification is a legal declaration, right? It's that God has declared us to be righteous before him. And sanctification is the actual, right, is actual righteousness. It's the outworking of righteousness. And in terms of justification, it's, passive in the sense that we believe in Christ's work, right? It's the work that he has done and we simply believe. There's nothing we contribute in any way. We also believe in sanctification that in a sense there's nothing we can contribute to our sanctification. We don't, we don't add anything to what Christ has done, but it is different in the sense that it's active. And that's what this passage is talking about, right? This passage, the main verb here is what? That we um, arm ourselves uh, to work in, uh, that he would work in us through arming ourselves. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. We have union with Christ through baptism and this is the way that it's worked out in our sanctification. Remember that Christ died on our behalf and in his death we die. So that means that everything that we have, all, all of our life comes from Christ. Now, he, so what, what do we know from, from the work of Christ? He is 
uh, in some ways it's a little different, right? Because of course Christ didn't sin. So he was not judged in the body for his own sin. He didn't die because of his own sin. But on the other hand, he did die. He died for sin, right? He wouldn't have died if it weren't for our sin. And when he died, he ceased from sin in that sense, right? His Christ in, fle- in the flesh, he lives uh, with our human nature. Now, he's not like us because our flesh, when we live here, our flesh, because we're from Adam, is connected permanently to this, uh, the evil that dwells within our flesh, all right, so, so, we, so Christ, when he was judged in the flesh, he did die, but he died for us. Now for, when, so what does that mean? Well, now we see from uh, Romans 6 that that means sin no longer can have any mastery over him, right? Because he's died. He's died. He was born in Adam's line, but he has died. And now he's raised again to, to God. There's, now he is glorified. Now, the difference with us is that we're living in the already not yet, right? So we, that's also true for us. When we die, finally, we will be completely delivered from sin, right? And just like when Jesus died, he no longer, he can no longer sin, he's dead. So when we die, we'll be glorified and in heaven, we can no longer sin. That's a glorious truth, but that's not actually what he's talking about right now. What he's talking about right now is the effect it has on us right now. What, do, what implication does that have for us right now? So I ask you a question. Are you dead or are you not dead? Well, you're not dead yet or else I wouldn't be talking to you. But on the other hand, we've died with Christ we have died with Christ and no longer live. So we live in this tension right now. This, these realities, the reality of, Christ, of those who die, the spiritual truth of those who die, die to sin. They cannot sin anymore. For us, we haven't made it all the way yet, but we are dead in Christ, right? That's what our baptism is, that we have died with Christ. And so what that does is it gives us true power. We're now free from sin. Before you were born again, it was impossible for you not to sin. You had no ability to do anything to please God because you were under the power of sin. But now that you have died, anyone who has died is free from sin. And everyone who is in Christ, in him has died. Right? In, in his death, we die. And so now we, are, we have the power to not sin. So how does he work that out? He works that out because we arm ourselves with the same purpose. If Christ's suffering led to the eradication of sin, then what? We arm ourselves also. So this is not something, so sanctification is not as passive. Sanctification requires an act of faith on the, in the part of sanctification requires work. It requires us to put to death what belongs to the old nature. And this, this old, older term, it's mortification. Mortification means to kill. And that's what we do all the time. Right now, what we're doing is dying. That's one of the works of the Christian life, is dying. So are you in the process of dying? Of course you are, right? Everybody in the world is in the process of dying. But I'm asking you as a Christian, are you dying? 
you're called to be dying, right? We're putting aside, we're, we're putting the old man to death. And that, that's, this is the work, uh, a work of God in us, but it's also the work that he called us to do. For what purpose? This mortification, this killing, is so that we no longer walk in the lusts of men, right? Because that's alien to us now, but that we walk according to the will of God. And that's, that's the two-pronged side of what sanctification means. Sanctification is mortification, dying to, the, to our old selves, dying to sin, and living to God. Now, the process is suffering, right? That's what we need to embrace because mortification has to involve suffering. Dying is never pleasant, right? Dying to ourselves requires pain and, and it also requires repentance. Um, repentance is uh, a little, is, can be tricky though. Repentance is not always quite as easy to recognize as we might think. Those who are truly repentant can say this along with the Apostle Peter, right? Is, is this your heart? For the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desire of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lusts, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. All of these things belong to the world, right? You know what's the same about all these things? They're all about avoiding suffering. That's what they're all about, is some way to avoid suffering. You know, that's, this, that's why we do these things, because we, if, if you uh, are walking in these things, this makes sense, right? It makes sense because you're trying to avoid the suffering of this world. You're trying to do the best that's possible in this world. And it's, it's a trap for every one of us. There's nobody who is beyond any of these temptations because to, to uh, rather than denying ourselves, it's so easy to indulge ourselves. But those who are truly repentant say what? I had enough time for that. I'm done with that. There's a kind of repentance that is a sincere repentance of the heart that, not, that doesn't just hate the effects of sin, but that truly hates sin. There are two kinds of sorrow. The Apostle Paul warns us of two different kinds of sorrow. There is a sorrow, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Many, many people are sorry for their sins, right? I mean, you can talk to all sorts of people who are sorry for the effects of sensuality and lust, all the things that, all the bad things that they've wrought in their own lives through these, through um, fornication and all sorts of things, or through their drunkenness and through partying and everything else like that. There are many people who, who, who don't want those things anymore. They have a, a, a worldly repentance, but you have to guard against worldly repentance. What does worldly repentance do? Worldly repentance, if you really are able to look at yourself, doesn't say, I've had enough of those things. Worldly repentance is I've, or I've had enough of the effects of those things. You know, if somehow I could kind of get by without being caught, I'd love to do it. Or it's simply just casting a, a wishful glance back, you know, and saying it's, it's like the uh, Israelites walking out of Egypt and saying, boy, you know what? There was a lot of good stuff back there. There's like onions and leeks and stuff. That's great. 
and it's, the, uh, it's uh, Lot's wife who looks back at sin, right? But true repentance, there is no looking back. And that's the, only kind, that's the repentance that's only done by the will of God, that's only done by Christ's work in us because it is the work of true mortification that he, through the, the work that he's doing in us, produces a hatred for sin. This sanctification um, is, yeah, Ben. I was just going to say another part of worldly sorrow, I think, is self pity, wallowing in shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, you know, a lot of the a lot of aspects of shame. You know, there there is a good kind of shame, so we don't want to talk about that. But there is a, a wrong kind of shame. The wrong kind of shame really comes. What what you can boil it down to, it it goes to self righteousness, um, because ultimately, what what you really feel bad about is you think to yourself, "Man, I am better than that. Why did I ever do that? I'm just so much better than that. Now I'm embarrassed. I don't want everyone else to see this." That, that is a sorrow, but that's worldly sorrow. And living in that kind of shame is a worldly shame. Whereas living in uh, dependence on Christ doesn't produce that kind of shame. It does produce a hatred and I, that's, that's, uh, that doesn't belong to me anymore. I don't belong to that. I don't, I don't walk in that anymore. I'm a new creation. That's what it produces. Good, any other, anyone else? All right, so suffering in the flesh brings suffering in the world too. We see this by the sanctification that uh, he works in us um, because we're surrounded by the world. And, the sa- and, and um, uh, Jason's gonna talk a little bit more about this, so I won't belabor it today, but what happens the second you start to, you're l- truly living a new life where God is working things in you so that you are living righteously in this world. Well, instantly what will happen is those who you used to belong to will hate you, right? Why? Because they hate Christ. And so what happens in all, in all this, all those who are surrounding you, in all this, they're surprised that you do not, do not run with them in the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. This, this surprise right here, um, that's... There's an idiom in Greek, and, and our idiom that matches it really well, you could translate it this way. In all this, they find it a foreign concept. That, that's, what, that's what it means. This is the same word for foreign xeno. Um, they find, they're surprised, but the reason they're surprised is because they cannot have any comprehension. It cannot make sense, right? It, it can't make sense because you're, you're playing in a whole different ball field here. They're surprised, they, they find it a foreign concept that you wouldn't run with them. What, what are you doing? How, how does that make any sense at all that you wouldn't run with us? And what, do you think you're better than us? Do you think so? And then, the, then their conviction, they're convicted for their sin and they hate you and they malign you. Um, but as we saw previously, being maligned in this point is God's will for possibly their salvation. Right? This is, we've already run through the Apostle Peter's uh, four points to salvation, or to uh, evangelism. It's, it's a little different than, uh, than crusade, right? But the four points are, first of all, you, you fix your hope so firmly 
on Christ that you don't live like anyone else in the world. And then step two is they'll hate you for that and they'll slander you. And then step three is you answer them uh, giving a hope and with reverence and respect, you give a hope for what you believe and you, you love them and you, and you do what is right. And step four is they'll become ashamed of themselves and some of them will be one. And that's truth. That's, that will be what will happen, but some of them will not. Suffering in this world, some of them will not be one. No matter what you do, they won't turn. But we do know that the truth is that they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. It is better to suffer for doing what is right than to suffer for what is doing wrong, for, than for doing wrong. Because everyone must give an account. We give an account for what we do in the body. Right? But by faith, we know that we are putting to death the things of the, the flesh and we're coming to Christ. So this sanctification that he's doing is for, for our salvation. For the gospel has for this purpose been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. Um, we, have, we have a lifetime of dying ahead of, ahead of us, right? Right now, your, your lifetime, this is a lifetime of dying and as a final touch, what will happen? You'll die. So do you be dying every day, right? Do you want to approach death without fear? The way that we approach death without fear is to be dying every day. And on that day, you'll be able to say, I died long ago, right? I've, I've spent my life dying because I have a hope, right? This is just the final touch because I know now when I finally die in the flesh that even those who are judged in the flesh because I'm born of Adam, everything of Adam has to go. But for believers, the first thing that goes is that we die to sin. And then in the end, the final thing is that we die in our bodies in final judgment because God did promise that the day on which you eat of this, Adam, you will die. And all of us are like him. And so we will die. But that gospel is that anyone who... Um, dies, it's judged, although we're judged in the flesh as men, we can live in the spirit according to the will of God. So our whole life is one of dying, and as we continue to die, then we can, uh, be, we'll be brought to God. Um, but that's, that's our hope. Now, sanctification, though, isn't only for um, dying to sin, but it's also living to righteousness, This is the will of God that we love one another. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. When when we talk about dying, when I'm talking about sanctification, we don't believe in perfectionism. We don't believe that we're going to be, that that, uh, by faith we could just be free from sin. Christ died, I'm united with Christ, I'm free from sin. We know that isn't what his intention is just by this. Because what does he command us to do? He commands us to love one another to cover a multitude of sins. Now, what does that imply? We got a multitude of sins here, right? I mean, that's, that's his point. Um, although we are dying, this is a process and by which we are make, being made holy, but what still remains, as long as the flesh remains, there are a multitude of sins. And what, we need to see that 
in ourselves here. You're gonna be disappointed in the church if you don't expect a multitude of sins. And you're gonna be disappointed in the church if you don't know how to respond to a multitude of sins or how to deal with it. How do we deal with a multitude of sins in our body? We love one another. Yeah, Archie. Yes, that's right. We know we're, we are dying because we're dying all the time. We're dying to our sin. We know we have them. We know everyone else sins. And we love one another. You know, and this is his second time that he's commanded us to fervently love one another. There is nobody here that's any better and any worse than anyone else. We all stand here before Christ having um, been um, having been forgiven, right? That's, and that's what we are to do is to love one another. That is the work of the Spirit. And that's not, not gonna happen any more out of your own self than your death to sin is gonna happen. You're not going to love people the way that God commands you to uh, until he works that out. Now, how is he going to work that out? He's gonna work that out through your faith and through your actions. Those are the means by which he applies it. Your actions are not gonna earn you anything before God, but he's going to work through them. And so how do you do this? How do we love one another? Well, one command is that we're hospitable to one another, right? That we take care of each other. We have so many uh, hospitalities around us now that maybe at this time they didn't have literal hospitals. They didn't have, liter- they didn't have hotels that, that like we have now. But they took care of each other and it's no different for us. Love covering a multitude of sins particularly means that we care for each other whenever we're suffering, whenever someone else is suffering for the sake of their sin, right? We're not, we don't look down on that. Well, they're, you know, they made their own bed, let them lie in it. That's not the attitude of, of Christians. That's not who we are. We love one another fervently from the heart because Christ has made us to be hospitable. And we have other blessings as well. The blessings that we have are that we have been made stewards of the manifold grace of God. God has given us many, many gifts and those gifts all belong to him, but he's distributed them to each one of us for all of us. This is the way that he's made us into a body. All of the gifts that are necessary for, uh, for our care and for our, the ongoing work of our salvation right now have been given to this body. They haven't been given to you. They've been given to this body. And so we are um, to be stewards of these. So what does it mean to be a steward then? Yeah, you're a caretaker of this. You have been entrusted with something. You've been entrusted with a gift and this gift belongs to God. And so how you deal it out, how you distribute it is important. First of all, the question is, will you distribute the gift? Or are you gonna bury it and say, I know, I know God is a harsh taskmaster. He won't be pleased with anything that I do. So what I'm gonna do is bury it so that I can make sure that I'm safe. No, the, the assumption is that he's given each one of us a gift for the distribution so that we distribute it to everyone that we meet. Now, what kind of gifts are there? In other passages, he runs through some, uh, the apostle Paul especially runs through particular gifts, but you can say they kind of all fall into two broad categories. And one of the types of gifts is a speaking gift. And um, that gift is given um, in some senses to 
all the congregation, but in special ways to individuals. So some individuals are called by their gifting to speak. And so that any public proclamation of the word, they are to speak in a certain way though, recognizing that it is a gift that is a, one of the manifold graces of God, that we're not speaking out of ourselves when we speak, but that we're speaking of what God has given to us. So how are we to speak? We're to speak as those who, as one who is speaking the utterances of God. We only, we only give God's gift if we speak on God's behalf using what God has said. So we can't shy away from that. Now every believer is, is given in certain situations the gift to be able to distribute to others as need. You need to be able to speak. You need to not be afraid. Don't hide that talent. Whenever it's given to you to speak to someone for their edification, to build them up, to, to help them, we're all called to do that. Why? It's because God has given it to them through us. Right? This is, but we need to speak with the utterance of God, not from ourselves. What else, for those who serve, how are those who minister or to serve, how, how are they to, um, to minister? Well, they're to minister as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. We spend a lot of time trying to minister according to the strength that we provide because we think we have so much to offer to people, right? Think about all I have to offer to you. You could be so much better if you would just take my advice. You'd be so much better here. Let me help you out in all the ways that you have, that you're not quite making the cut. Right? That, that can, that's one attitude. That's not a distribution of the manifold grace of God. But those who minister, those who minister according to the strength with which God supplies are able to do far greater than that Right? Because they're able to give what God has given. And that's what we are called to do. If we're going to love one another, if we're going to be sanctified, if we're dead with Christ in baptism and alive with him in resurrection, right now is when we begin to live that. We're not all the way there yet, but he has made us by a spiritual union with Christ. He has made us to be alive to God. And being alive to God means that we love one another, that we love each other with our words, with our service. So let's pray and ask God to, um, to do this in us. Father, we thank you that in, in Christ we have died, that we are um, free from sin, we're free from the power of sin, and that in your work you're uh, right now uh, conforming us to the image of your son. Lord, we desire it. Um, but we also confess that in so many ways we do not desire it. And so we pray, Lord, that by the work of your spirit, you would, um, you would help us to, to truly repent, not in worldly repentance, but in true repentance, turning uh, away from our loves, uh, love of the flesh um, to love of you. Help us, Lord, every day to die and looking forward to the time where we can be with you. We pray, Lord, that we would no longer walk in the lust of the flesh, uh, no longer walk in, uh, in our drunkenness and lusts, but instead to walk in love, to walk in love for you, to walk in love for one another. Um, Lord, help us to put off the old and to put on the new. We pray in Christ's name, amen.